Dude, I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Episode 15. 15. So now regardless of Alberta or Saskatchewan, this show can get its learners. Look, we can drive a car. Yes. With (laughs) someone of sober mind in the passenger seat. Oh my gosh. (laughs) We come to you from Mokinsis and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsina Nations, the Yahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. You can find on what native lands you are on by looking at native-land.ca. Our sources for the program today, origins.osu.edu, facinghistory.org, itk.ca, or itic, uh, indigenousfoundations.arts.ubc.ca, and canada.ca. Before we get in, uh, before we get too far into this episode, we would like to offer a warning. If you think that any historical events, uh, oh, we haven't said what this episode's about. Mm. <laughs> Again, when they download it, they can see. I know, I know. It just mm-hmm. feels weird to just like start. Right. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. So, I, on, on my sports one, I still introduce myself. Right. It's like, you probably figured that out by now. but Also, Peter has a sports podcast. So if you love the sound of his voice, oh, right. uh, why don't you search up Couch Potato Diary? And then you can hear him more. I mean, I wouldn't be mad at you. <laughs> um, but yes, we will be talking about uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada and the history of, uh, yeah, them and... Uh, what has happened to them so if you uh, think that any historical events of the quite frankly disgusting acts that have been committed against indigenous people in Canada will upset you then please make sure you're ready to hear it Uh, the foundation of reconciliation is education so let's do this for starters I was unsure of what terms to use during this episode you'll hear mainly indigenous uh, unfortunately the term Indian is brought up a lot um, we are quoting a lot of things and quite frankly it's written into government documents and things of that nature obviously uncomfortable and an unfortunate aspect of the history that we are covering uh, today Aboriginal was a term that came out of the Constitution Act and while it's not a derogatory word to use It is a product of colonial government's legal act. Indigenous is a term used as an umbrella term for First Nations people, Inuit and Métis people. So it's a preferred and all-encompassing term. So where we can in this show, that is what we will be saying. Yes. So at the start of the 1700s, European colonizers began to settle the east shores of North America, but more intrusive interactions with the Indigenous nations and colonial efforts to fully settle Canada will begin two centuries-ish later. Mm -hmm. Before colonization, most First Nations had a defined territory within which they moved freely in search of food and shelter. Several nations, however, lived in more permanent settlements. The Hurons and the Iroquois, for example, were excellent farmers who lived on the rich land of what is now southern Ontario. Many First Nations, including the Dakota, the Ojibwe, and the Huron, have roots in both what are now the United States and Canada. Others, such as the Mohawk, move back and forth between them. Some nations migrated to Canada due to political alliances or during times of war and conflict. The term Inuit refers broadly to the Arctic indigenous population of Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. 
Inuit means people, and the language they speak is called Inuktitut, though there are regional dialects that are known by slightly different names. This is no different than Spain Spanish versus South American Spanish. For centuries, these communities have relied on their natural resources, strong leaders, and innovative tools and skills to adapt to the cold, harsh environments of the Arctic North. The Inuit people survived primarily on fish and sea mammals, such as seals, whales, caribou, which I guess wouldn't be sea mammals, but it's in this list. (laughs) And walruses. <laughs> is it bad that, that I didn't even clue into that? And I was like, oh, yes, no, the the sea caribou of Look, the Arctic. I, I proofread all this, and I even <laughs> I was like, caribou totally swims. Right, yeah. Uh, out of respect for the land and ocean. <laughs> out of respect for the land and ocean that, prov- uh, that provided for them, they, like other indigenous peoples, used all parts of the animal for food, clothes, and tools, creating spears or harpoons, parka coats, blankets, like literally every single piece of an animal is used so there's no waste. Uh, I do remember, um, because as, as we were going to find out, what we learned in history class, well, not incorrect, was likely incomplete. Um, but I do remember that being a big thing that was really driven home for us when we would do any type of history classes on indigenous people. It's that there is nothing that is left behind. Like bones Mm -hmm. are used for tools, like everything. It is remarkable. Um, I I guess just the efficiency um, and the resourcefulness. And I, I just, I can't imagine, I can't imagine with all the technology we have in 2021, spending a whole bunch of time in the winter in the Arctic Anyway, yeah. <laughs> and so back in the 1700s, hmm. And before. Right, yeah, exactly. Like, yes, no, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't I can't even begin to imagine that. Yeah. So I, I would guess that you you just figure out everything you can, to uh, everything you can do with, with these things because, oh, yeah. you're going to need it. I, I think because I visited Head Smash in Buffalo Jump, like the museum that is now there, hmm. uh, not too long ago, like maybe a couple years ago. But one of the only things that was actually left behind by Indigenous people was um, rocks, like, in the shape of fire rings and ashes. Mm. Like, that's literally it. They took everything and used everything with them. Wow. Yeah. In the 18th and 19th centuries, in what is now known as Nunavut, European traders, fishermen, and whalers began to make trips to set up summer posts in the vast region. No no caribouers? (laughs) No caribouers, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, fishermen. So, you know, they probably oh, yeah, were the able fishermen. to just wrangle in a couple caribou for sure. <laughs> uh, but definitely summer posts because <laughs> winter. Uh, from the beginning of the 18th century and as late as the 1930s, a lively fur trade thrived between colonizers and the Inuit as well as Cree and Métis traders south of Nunavut. Uh, which is where my knowledge gained from my Alberta education about Indigenous peoples essentially stops. This was the stopping point for me. Everything that we say after this, I have learned within the last year-ish. Right. Um, and especially upon doing research for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing of many things. But that is certainly mm-hmm. one thing that kind of stands out is just how little of this is common, uh, common knowledge. Yeah. And with things that have happened in this country over the last few weeks, it is becoming much more common knowledge, but it is still, and I, to be perfectly frank, don't know how much the, the history curriculum has changed in the last way too many years since I've been in high school, but no, for, for sure that there is, yeah. like I said before, very much, uh, incomplete 
on the uh, the, the history telling of this in, in schools. Anyway, for sure, uh, none of it has historically received little investment or attention. The depletion of important ocean resources and the fashion of Europe moving away from leathers and furs, making them less valuable. Many Inuit communities were left without the means to thrive. With colonial expansion to the west and the discovery of gold in them, their hills, the <laughs> fur trade began its decline. As one historian wrote, quote, until the gold rush of 1858, fur trading had been the dominant industry. With the rush, mining became the predominant economic activity. At its peak, there were as many as 20,000 prospectors. Coal mining, as well as forestry and fishing, also emerged during this period, but none rivaled gold in its importance. As the prairies were settled, they became the breadbasket for all of Canada and a growing market for Eastern Canada's industries. In this new economy, there was a smaller role for Indigenous traders. Thousands of communities that were touched by the trade with Europeans suffered decline, a process that was exacerbated by the settlers' increasing encroachment on their land, resources, and ways of life of the Indigenous peoples of North America. By the 1940s, the government began to settle the Inuit in permanent communities, and the pressure to assimilate increased. The Inuit became dependent on the government for education, healthcare, and other services, which is going to be a recurring theme, and it actually happens much, much uh, later in this timeline to Inuit people, but we're talking about it now. Mm -hmm. uh, the Inuit, so they became dependent on the government uh, for all these things because of the changes to the environment and the once thriving trade agreements were now left unfilled. 30 years later, in 1971, the Inuit Taparit Kenatami ITK was formed. The ITK represents four distinct regional homelands. Inuvialuit, which is the Northwest Territories, Nunavik, Northern Quebec, Nunatsiavit, Northern Labrador, and Nunavut, which became its own territory in 1999. After years of hard-fought negotiations, each region has successfully settled its own constitutionally protected Aboriginal rights agreements. In these regions, the Inuit received titles to the land and, under several self-government agreements, expanded administrative powers to govern according to their worldview. It's almost like these people who could govern themselves have the ability to govern themselves. <laughs> The ITK is still working hard to this day to improve access to education, resources, and build livelihoods for the Inuit people because everything that happened uh, during colonization just majorly fucked their societies up. Right. Which will be a theme for Which a while. Which is, I mean, that yeah. is ongoing mm -hmm. currently. Uh, Métis, which is French for mixed, doesn't do justice to the complexity of this diverse group of people. The term describes descendants of both Europeans and First Nations people. In the narrower sense, Métis refers only to the descendants of First Nations people and French settlers and merchants who settled along the Red River in Manitoba. French colonizers and indigenous peoples' meetings resulted in descendants of mixed heritage, over time, these descendants developed language, culture, and traditions distinct from those of First Nations and European Canadians, which is kind of crazy. That And it's just, again, people have been developing languages for a very long time, but it's just like, it's crazy that out of this, uh, I guess, mixing, 
was came just an entirely different culture. It's, totally. It, yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. Uh, while the cultural and linguistic distinctions between the French Métis and the Anglo Métis were more pronounced in the past, the two Métis communities have become more unified over time. The majority of Métis continue to live within what some call the Métis homeland, a loosely defined area along the former fur trade route, which includes Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, British Columbia, and the Northwest Territories. So, Canada. Like uh, most of Canada. <laughs> right. Métis individuals did not live on reserves since they did not receive the official status Indian designation that would have allowed them to join on reserve bands. We will also learn later that since the government's objective was to have the least amount of status Indians possible, having Métis people not factor into that number seems like a plus for them. Which is gross to say out loud. Totally. Without the status Indian designation, the Métis remained isolated from First Nations and Euro-Canadian societies and were often discriminated against by both. Over the centuries and in their struggle for official recognition, the Métis groups assumed specific distinctions combining Indigenous and Western traditions. They adopted symbols to reinforce a collective mixed identity and create a sense of pride. In writing about Indigenous people, Europeans ensued Europeans assumed a very clear hierarchy between the superior them and the inferior new world. The written culture of colonizers made them view the history and culture of indigenous peoples without a written language as inferior. We know that indigenous people have storytellers and knowledge keepers in their culture, but to early Europeans, something not recorded in writing was deemed unreliable, mythological, a fiction, which is the fake one and nonfiction is the real one. <laughs> Uh, Europeans also dismissed the spirituality of ind indigenous peoples as superstitious and their understanding of the world and its creation as a myth. Some colonizers saw indigenous peoples as noble exotic figures, but this image was a myth in itself. The noble, free, pre-social being was largely a figment of the imagination of Englishmen and Frenchmen who romanticized a life without the constraints and corruption in their civilizations. It's the whole idea of wanting something you don't have. A French priest, who was probably just an awesome dude, uh, said, the Indians trouble themselves very little with our civilities. Men and women hide only their private parts. They eat in a snuffling way and puffing like animals. In fine, they put no restraint on their actions and follow simply the animals. Oh, this is all awful stuff to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other Europeans, including missionaries in colonial Canada, viewed indigenous populations through the lens of religion. To them, these children of nature were a living example of the biblical story of Adam and Eve and believed that with time and the proper religious environment, the quote-unquote primitive Indian could achieve civilization just like the modern European man. Fuck, that's gross to say. Even yeah. though it's obviously in quotes. Yes, all, all of this um, is just awful. And you, you wonder how people, even all the way back then, could mm -hmm. think like this. The idea from missionaries that all are alike in the eyes of God and indigenous peoples could meet the same religious fate as white Europeans was a leading mindset behind the establishment of the religious residential schools. Indigenous people were to become wards of the state for their own protection and so that they could be civilized and in the long run become part of the European Canadian society. This is one of the things in doing um, research for this this week. If they could have just fucked off, so much would have been better. Totally. But instead, everyone had to fall under all of their stuff. Like, it's just, 
it's disgusting. It, it really, really is that everyone has to become a part of what you believe in and everyone has to become, become a part of what you do and anything else is just uncivilized. It's so frustrating. So it, insidious. It, it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting is, I mean, there's many words that I can find for it, but disgusting is definitely up there. Yeah. By the middle of the 19th century or the 1800s, impatience with the progress of quote-unquote civilizing indigenous people led to frustration and the view of cunning, vile, detestable beings became synonymous with native people. Colonial Canadian officials embraced a similar idea and started a campaign to assimilate using the residential schools, the first of which opened in 1831. Let's put a pin in that idea and go back now a little bit because... You know, if this trajectory wasn't fucked enough, now we need to compound some things. Mm -hmm. War and political changes also contributed to the destruction of indigenous ways, livelihoods, and physical existence. France and Great Britain began to clash openly in the 1750s over, over several areas of control, including North America. In 1756, they declared war and each recruited First Nations to fight on their side. Seven years later, at the end of what the British called the Seven Years' War, because we're fantastic at naming shit. Solid name. Um... Yeah. The also extremely creative Treaty of Paris <laughs> ceded most of the French territories in North America to Great Britain. Indigenous nations, particularly those of the Great Lakes region, had better relationships historically with the French than the British, and the conquest of the French territories created deep tensions around the issue of indigenous sovereignty and the integrity of their way of life. Minavavana, a, a Chippewa leader in French Canada, responded to the victory of the British in the war against the French as follows, insisting on the rights of his people. Englishmen, although you have conquered the French, you have not yet conquered us. We are not your slaves. These lakes, these woods, and mountains were left to us by our ancestors. They are our inheritance, and we will part with them to none. Your nation supposes that we, like the white people, cannot live without bread and pork and beef, but you ought to know that he, the great spirit and master of life, has provided food for us in these spacious lakes and on these woody mountains." King George III of Britain issued a royal proclamation meant to establish good relations between the First Nations and the settlers. It was an attempt to address the concerns of indigenous people, such as Minavavana. Yes, right? yeah. It clearly defined the areas belonging to the indigenous peoples, territories where no private squatting, settlement, or sales were permitted. This was the first public British acknowledgement of the pre-existing rights of First Nations to their land and recognized the First Peoples as nations. This set the stage for a series of treaties signed between indigenous peoples and the British Crown on equal footing, nation-to-nation -nation treaties. To this day, the document serves as an official recognition of the rights of First Nations to their land and of the, quote, sovereignty of the Indian nations. By the 1830s and 1840s, when the colonization and settlement of the, of the Canadian region began to shift into high gear, the European settlers pursued laws and regulations to manage First Nations, and the reserve was a common colonial strategy for managing the local population. The imminent destruction of Indigenous peoples is becoming more of a reality now, and the hypothesized 100 million Native people that were in present-day North and South America sits at about 1 million in the mid-1800s. Studies and stories show that Canadian colonialism was quite deadly. Many thinkers at the time noted the combined effects of European colonialism and feared that the indigenous peoples in Canada were marching toward extinction. So like not fucking good. No. From 100 million to 1 million. Right. 
the indigenous peoples in Canada were killed in the largest numbers by diseases such as measles, smallpox, and influenza, for which they had no immunity. But they were also killed by colonial blades and guns, plus factors directly connected to colonialism, land theft on a gigantic scale, forced removals, and exhaustion of natural resources. From the 1830s onward, the indigenous groups were forced to give up their migratory... Is it M words? Is it M words <laughs> that I can't do? Maybe, yeah. Migratory? Yep. Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Forced to give up their migratory habits, settle on reserves, learn farming and trading, and receive religious instruction. The British Crown became the tr- became. The British Crown became the trustee of Indigenous lands for protection against illegal sales, poaching, and encroachment, but of course this arrangement took away the rights of Indigenous peoples to their land. Legally, it was not theirs anymore, says the people that came and took it. (sighs) Yeah. Right? Yeah. James Dashuk of the University of Regina and other scholars suggest that the catastrophic destruction of indigenous peoples in North America reached its peak with the decision by the U.S. and Canadian governments to clear the bison herds in the prairies for the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Okay. Railway, sorry. Okay, so in school, yep. my very limited mm-hmm. apparent, apparently history classes in school... I learned that the bison were wiped out because of overhunting, which I guess technically is true. Right. But I didn't know that it was like a mandate, like go kill those bison so we can build a train. Like what the fuck is that? How big is your train, Johnny Mac? It does seem like an odd request. Like, I don't know. I feel like if you just started, I don't know what construction stuff looked like in the 1800s, (laughs) but I feel like if you just started hauling up and hammering away at shit, they'd probably just get scared and leave. Right. Well, this is speculation on my part, but Mm -hmm. I mean, with everything else that was going on, and especially this was, this was like a a mandate from John A. MacDonald, I'm thinking that the purpose was to wipe out the food source of indigenous peoples so that they would leave the area so Mm -hmm. that they could build a train. Like, I don't think it was, I don't think it was clear the buffalo so that the railway can get Sorry, and, the buffalo, the bison, so right. that the railway can get built. It's and oops, clear look the at bison. This. Exactly. It's a byproduct. Right. By 1869, the destruction of the bison herds that the indigenous peoples relied on for food there and other resources there it is. was almost complete. Uh, everyone's favorite prime minister, John A. MacDonald, decided to clear the areas of indigenous peoples whose land European settlers coveted, according to the U of R's Dashuk, a key aspect, I'm quoting this now, a key aspect of preparing the province of Saskatchewan was the subjugation and forced removal of indigenous communities from their traditional territories, essentially clearing the plains of Aboriginal people to make way for railway construction and settlement. Okay, okay, so not speculation. (laughs) Despite guarantees of food aid in times of famine in Treaty No. 6, Canadian officials used food, or rather denied food, as a means to ethnically cleanse a vast region from Regina to the Alberta border as the Pacific Canadian Railway took shape. For years, government officials withheld food from Aboriginal people until they moved to their appointed reserves, forcing them to trade freedom for rations. Once on reserves, food placed in ration houses was withheld held for so long that much of it rotted while people it was intended to feed fell into decades-long cycles of malnutrition suppressed immunity and sickness from tuberculosis and other diseases thousands died 
And now personally, mm -hmm. not that all of that was awesome to read, but personally, this no. is where, um, admittedly, when I was doing research, I had to take a break. Um, because you go from that to the largest forced removal aimed at clearing all indigenous people was in the territory of Assiniboia. And if I can pronounce that easily, it's because that's where I grew up. Uh, where within a year, 5,000 people were expelled from the Cypress Hills. Although officially promoted as a protective place for the endangered population, the reserves served one significant goal, to make room for new European settlers and create a new economic system based on farming where traditional indigenous ways of living had no place. Uh, yes, Assiniboia, Saskatchewan is where I grew up. And while in this case, the territory of Assiniboia covers more ground than the uh, town that currently holds about 2,500 people, um, that it still is, you know, Assiniboia is still in the territory of Assiniboia. So yeah, that was not yeah. particularly awesome to come across. Yeah. Uh, Alan McMillan and Eldon Yellowhorn write, Treaties shifted from peace and friendship to land surrender. The new treaties signed between 1871 and 1921 were drastically different from what had come before. Sorry, this is a quote, so I'll keep going. But, like, my little side note there is drastically different as in, like, more fucking bad. Mm -hmm. um, Europeans viewed the land as a vast, empty space ready for their taking. A... Department of Indian Affairs officer told a crowd of indigenous listeners in 1876. This is bad. Many years ago, you were in darkness, killing each other and making slaves was your trade. The land was of no value to you. The trees were of no value to you. The coal was of no value to you. The white man came. He improved the land. You can follow his example. He cuts the trees and pays you to help him. He takes the coal out of the ground and he pays you to help him. You are improving fast. The government protects you. You are rich. You live in peace and have everything you want. Fuck that fucking guy, in my humble opinion. Like, looking at Indigenous cultures and way of life, it's obviously far from the truth. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people had a love of the land and were part of it. Uh, a story that my friend Yasmin actually uh, told me was that uh, Europeans were, like, asking for advice on what plants they should eat. And by Indigenous people, they were told to watch the bears. If there's something they won't eat, you shouldn't eat it either. Bears, just like all of their animals and Indigenous people, were part of the land. Uh, and I personally have recently purchased some foraging and plant identifying books, and all of them have dedications to indigenous people for the information they contain. And most paragraphs on specific plants tell how those plants were originally used and what they're still used for by indigenous people today. Yeah, that that whole quote really does sum up the attitude of the time uh, of the, the government of Canada, essentially. Yeah, and I'm also like... Look, money was made up then and it's made up now. Like, mm -hmm. he's like, oh, you take the coal from the ground and now you have money. La D, what can I buy with it? Nothing. Money isn't real. Anyways, sorry. As a result of the treaties, in the course of clearing the way for European settlers, about half of the land was taken away from indigenous peoples. In many cases, where the peaceful means did not provide the best way to rid the prairies of the starving and diseased indigenous groups, the government resorted to deception. Government agents wrote the treaties in a technical language with which indigenous leaders were not familiar, and large discrepancies often existed between the verbal agreement achieved with translators and the English-written treaties. Again, English, very much a second language. Uh, First Nations received a one-time pavement, a relatively small parcel of reserve land, and a yearly cash 
payment to each group member. The previous nation-to-nation treaties were replaced with new agreements that were, in effect, sales documents. Fucking cool. Right. In 1867, the British North America Act united three British colonies into the first four provinces of the Dominion of Canada, making Canada a federation of provinces. Why is that in the sentence? Under the British crown. Now the Dominion, being brand new, wanted to rewrite and ultimately do away with any native people. Two main pieces of policy regarding relations with First Nations were enacted. The Gradual Civilization Act. And Which the... just, uh-huh. reading it is awful. It's like, this is what we're going to do. Right. And the Gradual Enfranchisement Act, that has a nice positive spin sound to it. Mm -hmm. Both of these were created before Canada was dominionized, if that's a word. Sure. But both were brought back around to gradually transform First Nations men and women into Canadian citizens, as long as... This is like the side effects of a pill at the end of a commercial. Mm -hmm. They gave up all ties to their native heritage, acquired Euro-Canadian education, and that they leave the reserve and become owners of private property. Eventually, the Canadian Parliament consolidated these laws in 1876. This legislation, which, you guessed it, is the Indian Act, has had many amendments but still exists today and brought registered Indians under federal responsibility. The newly formed Department of Indian Affairs governed nearly all aspects of the Indigenous people's lives, including tribal membership, reserve infrastructure and services, systems of governance, culture, and education. Again, I say, these people that were clearly governing themselves just fine yeah. can probably govern themselves just fine. <laughs> Don McCaskill, a professor for Indigenous Studies at Trent University, wrote, After Indians were no longer useful for economic or military purposes, the government established a system of reserves designed to, quote, protect and civilize Native people in order that they might eventually assimilate. The policy was to settle the Indians on the land and, over time, develop them into, quote, productive citizens. In theory, they were to learn to exercise individual self-determination and assume responsibilities of their own affairs. Missionaries, educators, and agents, judges, and police were sent to the reserves to facilitate the transition from savagery to civilization, which again, barf. Yeah. The Indian Act created bands, designations that included the First Nations, but not the Métis, non-status Indians, or Inuit groups. Right from the start, it discriminated against many people who lived as indigenous, but were not included in the Act's definition of who was, quote, Indian. What did it mean to be a status Indian? The original document of 1876 defined someone as being legally Indian if he or she fit these criteria. First, any male of Indian blood reputed to belong to a particular band. Secondly, any child of such person. Thirdly, any woman who is or was lawfully married to such person. The Indian Act made all First Nations persons dependent on government institutions for their rights and services, thereby unilaterally striking down their status as independent nations. What was claiming to make Indigenous peoples more self-sufficient did the opposite. Bro. They were governing themselves before this act. Yes. This act uh, essentially made First Nations populations children under the supervision of the state and assumed that they were unable to govern themselves. 
Initially, status Indians who obtained a university degree or became a professional, example, a clergyman or a lawyer, became, quote-unquote, enfranchised or gained the right to have full citizen... Now it's (laughs) C-words. Citizenship in Canada with or without their consent, but in gaining Canadian citizenship, which included the right to vote as Indigenous people were not allowed, these individuals lost their Indian status. The Indian Act focused on men's status and undermine the role of women in traditional indigenous society. It and other policies reflected the centrality of men in late 19th century European society, which meant that First Nations women lost their leadership roles once the band's administrations were set up by the government. The original act stipulated that the Indian status of an indigenous woman in a First Nations band would be revoked if she married a man who was not a status Indian. This meant that she would also lose her right to band membership, which, among other consequences, would then prohibit her from living and participating in her own community. The loss of status applied to any children this woman might have with that spouse. The law went against the traditionally matrilineal rules of descent for various First Nation societies where the man joined the household of the woman he married. It's like literally flipping away their, like flipping around their way of life in every single way you can think of. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, this probably goes without saying, but there was no consulting of indigenous peoples, especially women, uh, at any point during the enforcement of this act. Yeah, I I mean, probably from first contact up until now. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, (laughs) fair. Uh, John A. Masters said in 1887... (laughs) Sorry, that was my... I'm trying, I don't, I don't want to say John A. McDonald a lot, so I shortened it to John A. Mackers. Oh! (laughs) Okay. Gotcha, bitch! Yeah, you definitely did. (laughs) So he uh, said in 1887, the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. Yeah. The Indian Act suppressed expressions of indigenous culture, such as traditional ceremonies, including the sun dance and, in particular, the potlack. Europeans regarded these ceremonies as part of a primitive world of superstitions, myth, and magic. Catholic and Protestant missionaries strove to ban them all together. This was very much burn the witch type of a thing. The discrimination against the ceremonies and greater indigenous cultures was transmitted through discrimination... No, whoops. Was transmitted through. Yes. Was transmitted through legislation as well. The ceremonies were condemned because they conflicted with the ways of European business, which encouraged frugality, savings, and an exact exchange of goods for money. Not up until Mm -hmm. 1951. Mm -hmm. So. About 100 years later, did an amendment to the Indian Act remove sections that restricted customs and culture. We should note that while government officials and clergy outlawed sacred objects, totem poles, masks, pipes, and the like, many of those same officials and clergy collected them privately and often sold them at lucrative prices. Just one nice cherry on top of a giant shit sundae. A hundred percent. And here feels like a good spot to pause this episode and mm-hmm. by pause i mean end right um we definitely have more um but this was a lot yeah uh uh to research and probably to hear one of us is about to listen to this back and take out all of our ums and ahs <laughs> uh like that one. Oh wait i'm gonna cut that out yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna cut it out now <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, this was a lot to research and to say and probably to hear. So uh, we're going to stop this episode here. We will have a part two uh, because there's just so much to get to. And again, like we said at the top of the show, the foundation of reconciliation is education. So we will have a, this is a two-parter. So mm-hmm. we'll have that for you later. Um, if you want to leave us a review, please do. If you want to uh, hit us up, if you want to slide into our DMs, if you want to send us an email on Instagram, we are at We Had No Idea Podcast. You can email us at We Had No Idea Podcast at gmail.com. And tell your friends. Right. Tell your mom. Mm hmm. Tell your sister. <laughs> tell everyone. Yeah. Um,. <laughs> In closing, I just have something yeah, I want to say. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, researching this was very, very difficult. But I, it, it obviously pales in... Com- I could get up and walk away from the laptop very easily. Did so, in mm-hmm. fact, several times. But this was real life for a lot of people. And we, we named this We Had No Idea, but we continue to have no idea what it was like at that time and what it continues to, to be like now. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's just, there's obviously a lot of emotions in reading this, and we we have the privilege of being able to to take a break and like okay, yeah, whew, that was heavy. But this is this was and is real life for a lot of people, and the main thing, and um, like we said, there, there's going to be part two of this, and honestly, probably parts three and four at, at some point down the line yeah, as ongoing. well. Ongoing, yeah. Um, but the the one thing that I I really wanted to get across today because all of this sucked just massive amounts obviously and i can't imagine what it's like to have an entire country try their damned this to wipe you off of the face of the planet and the fact that they haven't been and the fact that um indigenous culture still even fucking exists to this day is the work tireless work of so many people and while a lot of times we do focus on the bad and the negative, mm-hmm. I cannot stress enough how many examples there are of people in these communities who have done amazingly positive things to try to affect change and slowly but surely, hopefully, getting things back to even just a fucking livable situation for them. Mm-hmm. So to those people, I cannot express enough... Um, I don't even know what the, the right like, word is, but just admiration, I guess. Yeah, compassion for, and admiration. For, for going through all of this. And just people throughout centuries who have had to fight this fight to keep even a shred of their culture while everything was working against them mm-hmm. will never not amaze me. And that was the biggest thing that I took away from this is that you yeah. had everything working against you. Um, and we'll get into more ways of that. Like, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And that, that there is still the the cultures and the traditions that they have today is nothing short of amazing and i i will yeah i will never have any idea on this one yeah well said thank you that was really well said thank you um so yeah we'll put out a part two and mm-hmm. uh, we hope that you learned as much as we did during this episode and we will talk to you later Bye-bye. bye bye bye